check. Hey, it's working. I'm going to try it, Michael. See, what happens is stuff goes wrong. Uh, you plan this stuff out and you build a stage and everything, and then, and then the sun makes all your computers overheat. And so here we are. And so rather than stand up here, because I've been talking to you guys through a screen for a whole year now, I'm going to move right over here. Can I create this? Can I do this? I'm violating every audio man ever's ideas of what should be happening right now. All right. Okay. I'm just glad the microphone's still working. We weren't sure if it was going to work again. Are we good? All right. You guys, it's really, really, really good to see you. I know where you're like out there and, and we're not like fully back and we can't hug and everything, but it, it's honestly, it's really, really good to see you. And it feels a bit like um, this is some sort of, I mean, honestly, it, it feels like a different kind of Easter. It feels like we're heading into a good time. It, times, it feels like we're, we're heading into sort of a new way of being. I don't, I don't think we're going to be the same church. I don't think we're going to be the same people. Um, I don't think it's going to look the same or feel the same. We have a lot of, a lot of new people, and we've, we've gone through a lot of change, and it's wonderful, and I'm excited about it, and this is the most hopeful I've been in a while. And so um, I was, I'm going to start off by reading the text. So last year, what makes something, like, memorable is not when it's, like, really good. What makes something really memorable is when it, like, doesn't go well at all. Like, you go camping, right, and people are like, how, how was your camping trip? And I'm going to fiddle with this forever because I still have not. Hi. Hi, everybody online. I haven't talked to you yet. I'm sorry you didn't sign up in time. Um, I'm just joking. All right. So what happens is you plan a, a camping trip, and then uh, you go on said camping trip, and you come back, and there's two que- the question people have is, like, how was your camping trip? I'm just going to leave this sticking out like that. How was your camping trip? Oh, uh. It was good. We, everything went well. We camped, and everything was fine, and it was perfect. And that's not a very good story. What's a good story is when you tell me it started raining, and it was caterpillar season, and it was just a really big mess, and we couldn't start a fire. We ran out of food, and then we got lost, and then a bear raided our stuff. Like, that's a good story. Um, so if I think back over all the Easter's that we've had, and there's been a lot. I've been here since 2003. There's been a lot of Easter's. Uh, it's hard to, like, pick out individual ones, right, and remember them. Um, I remember last year's, like clear as day, and uh, I will remember this year's, and I think the difficulty of the whole thing is what makes it so special. Um, I think the fact that we've all sort of collectively been through some stuff, I think makes it really, really important and and really special, and so last year I I talked a bit about um, this picture that, that John gives us in the garden where Mary is there, and she's just realized that uh, his body is gone, and she's crying, and she doesn't know what's happening, and this man walks up behind her, and it says that she thinks he was, she thinks he was the gardener, and he asks her, why are you crying? And there's this picture there that's sort of like every reader in the first century would look at it and be like, oh, this is a picture. This is a picture of Genesis. Like, this is a new, a new deal. Like, this is a new start. You have a man and a woman in the garden, new life being brought out of the ground. Like, that's all on purpose. That garden is like a beautiful picture. So I'm going to read this now. Um, I'm reading from, uh, oops, sorry. I'm hoping my iPad doesn't overheat as well. I'm in John 20. Um, 
And so if you want to turn there, you can. Otherwise, just listen. John 20, I'm going to start in verse 11. It says, Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my, my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? I'm thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, uh, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them all the things that he had said to her. And I think this is my favorite part here. It says, on the evening of that first day they, uh, of, of the week, they, they went, the, blah, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of Jewish leaders, they came, uh, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. After, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed his breath on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. All right, so there's a lot going on in this passage. Um, my main focus last year was on sort of the garden. I was literally in my garden, and I asked you to like sort of be, join me in your gardens, wherever you were, and uh, to, to just sort of in some way be together. And we talked about what it was like for Mary to discover this scene in the garden. So now I want to I like back up from that garden. I've had this fascinating conversation two weeks ago. Um, if you don't know, like if you've never been a pastor, like you spend a lot of the year thinking about two specific services, which is like Christian, uh, Christmas and Easter. And you're looking for like those conversations that spark, like what should I talk about? this would, Because let's be honest, it's the same story over and over every year for your whole life. And so how do you look at it from a different angle? And I had this conversation a couple weeks ago this thing is going to drive me nuts the whole time. You're just going to have to watch me play with it. And there's a, there's a hum coming out of that guitar right there, Michael. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, all right, Michael, you're doing an amazing job. And I praise God that you're here, and I'm thankful. And everybody online, you better be clapping for Michael right now. He's been through this. All right. Um, dude moved our whole indoor church outdoors. Um, okay. Where was I? So I had this conversation two weeks ago, and that was the conversation that I was like, this is it. This is what we need to talk about. This is what we need to like, focus on. This is what we need to hear. Um, and it was a conversation I was having with, a, with an Old Testament, like a, a, a Hebrew Bible scholar. What we call the Old Testament, Jewish people call the Hebrew Bible, and, and it was a, a Hebrew scholar, and she showed me sort of the imagery of, of, of the garden in the New Testament, how it compares to the garden imagery in Genesis and in Revelation and in several places throughout the scripture because the garden is always present. The garden is always coming back and it's always there. Um, and it's an important piece of the whole like, storytelling thing. When I was a kid, I, um, I had a particular way of reading the Bible. I grew up Southern Baptist and, and we read the Bible, um, especially books like Genesis. They were just read literally and you just read it and that's, that's what it meant is what it meant. What it said is what it meant. Um, and there was no underlying sort of theological, philosophical ideas. There was no parable to it. It was just like, no, this is how we got here. Um, and so I would read about um, the Garden of Eden. And as a kid, I remember being five or six, and I was fascinated by the idea of, of the Garden of Eden. I was like, there's a place 
Like, I think I was thinking like Lion King, Hakuna Matata kind of stuff. There's a place where there's like, like a river and you can swim in it and, 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 and everything's perfect and all the food is there and everything you need. Why would we ever jeopardize anything like that where everything is supposed to, is as it should be? And it's like, and it's so good that you don't even bother wearing clothes because there's no competition. Like, you're just there. Everything is good, right? Like, and so I had this picture in my head, like the Garden of Eden, where is that? And you read the story and it's like they're kicked out, they steal the fruit a little bit of mutiny against God, and he kicks him out, and it's guarded now with this angel, with this flaming sword. But in my mind, it still existed somewhere in the world. So I would, it was like the 80s, and so in the 80s, when you wanted to see a picture of something, you had two options. You either had to actually have that picture already, and you could look at it, or you could go to the library and look it up. You have no idea. And I wanted to see pictures of gardens in the Middle East. I wanted to see greenery in the Middle East. I wanted to see, I remember, like, I want to see I want to look for the Garden of Eden. And so like I, I went to the library. I didn't have a, any pictures of the Garden of Eden, surprisingly, in my own home. I went to the library and I would look at pictures of like drawings and like I would look at maps and I'd be like, maybe it's there. Maybe it's there. Maybe it's there. And because I, I was fascinated with it, I wanted to find it. I, I, the, this idea of the Garden of Eden where everything is as it should be and everything's taken care of. That's, that's the goal, right? I mean, isn't that technically what we're always working for anyways? We're trying to get everything as it should be. We're trying to feed everyone, take care of everyone. How do we get there again? And as I got older, my, my understanding of the, of the scriptures matured, and I read Genesis in these new ways, and, and, um, and I came to see the Genesis as a book that, especially the beginning of it, it's about what we're doing here. It tells you the point of life. It tells you the whole reason that we exist. That's why it was written. And the garden, and this is the conversation I was having with this Jewish scholar. I'm messing with it again, Michael. Just yell at me if you need to. Um, I think what happened was I grew my hair out and I don't know how to wear a microphone anymore. I think that's what happened. So I had this conversation and she said, well, you know what the garden symbolizes in, in Jewish thought? And I was like, what? And she said, it symbolizes um, the throne room of God. It's the throne room of God. It's, it's where God exists in the world. It, it, was the, it was the place where it was the only place in the universe. This is how they thought of ancient temples. And, and the way Genesis is written, it's made to like make the earth look like the earth is God's temple. God dwells here in this earth. And, and the, sort of the, the Garden of Eden was this temple throne room. And it, it was the very center of the whole thing. It was where Adam and God walked together. And where Adam, everything was taken care of, all the food he needed, and he had his job there. Like he had work to do. He had a vocation in an office, and he had a position that he held. And, and God met him there, and they walked, and they talked. And it's a very incredibly beautiful picture. And this idea, though, of the Garden of Eden, it doesn't go away in Genesis. It doesn't go away. The, the very idea of the throne room of God being that where God and man are created to dwell together. It doesn't go away. It actually travels with you through the text. And this is what she showed me. And this is what I want to talk to you guys about. Um, pretty quickly as you move in, I mean, the, the, the idea of the, of the garden, it kind of goes away at first. You don't think about it again. But then you come to this moment where the, the, the Israelites have been freed from Egypt. And where does God take them? He takes them to the middle of the desert, obviously not a garden. But he takes them to the desert, and he meets them at a mountain. And he's at the top of the mountain, and it's sort of a, an enclosed space. Like, you can't go there. Only Moses is allowed to go there. He's taken sort of the, the form of the new Adam, right, um, in the story. And he's going to go up, and he's going to meet with God. He's going to dwell there with God for a while. And obviously, he's going to be fed and everything, because he's gone for a while, long enough for the people to lose their minds and start making stuff. Um, and God meets him there. And there's this specific command. It's sort of like the angel with the flaming sword keeping you from, from the garden, right? There's this command to like, nobody should approach the mountain. Anyone else other than Moses who approaches the mountain 
we'll just die. So don't touch the mountain. And so that is that this, this picture of the Garden of Eden is now moved to the mountain. It's the same thing. It's where God dwells with his people. It's where he takes care of them and feeds them and instructs them. And have, they have their vocation in their office. And then as you move forward through the text even more, you, you begin to see it in the tabernacle. God gives them, like, you're going to make this tent. And in the middle of it, you're gonna be this, there's going to be this thing called the tent of meeting. And I'm going to dwell there. And you're going to decorate it. If you actually read the decorations that they put in there, it's decorated like the Garden of Eden. There's, like, these tree decorations. There's fruit decorations. There's a thing called the showbread. It's, it's, it's a bread that's there to, to be eaten. It's... Um, and God's throne is there, this, this seat, this, uh, this mercy seat, it's there. And God meets them there. And so, like, it now is moving with them through the desert. The Garden of Eden is there with them. And the Garden of Eden is right there in the center. It's that place where God and human beings dwell together. Um, where we are destined to be, where things are as they should be and all is made right. And the suffering is gone and the tears are wiped away. But only the priest can enter in, Right? And then that moves into the physical temple after that, this temple of stone, dreamt up by David and, and built by Solomon. And as they build this thing, they, they put this room in the middle called the Holy of Holies. And that is the new expression of the Garden of Eden. It's always there with them. And now there's this permanent version of it, right? And they're gathered there. And, and the priest goes in once a year to offer sacrifices on the altar. And God and humanity are there dwelling together. Not only that, it, this, it begins to look more like the Garden of Eden because in the, in the temple they kept, they were commanded to keep these storehouses of food for the poor and to feed them, to take care of the hungry and the needy. There was money uh, there to help the widows and the orphans. Um, it expanded to include all these other things that the Garden of Eden did as well. And it was where the people spent their days and where the priests spent time inside the Holy of Holies there. And then something changed. Every time, every time God sort of switches this symbol of the Garden of Eden, it actually becomes closer to us and more accessible because the next time it comes, it comes in the form of Jesus. Now, Jesus constantly tells the people that he's basically the temple. He tells them that all the time, that he's here to take the place of the temple. All the things that happened in the temple, all the things that they did there, these are the things that Jesus would now do. People are hungry, Jesus would miraculously feed them. If the people were thirsty, he'd provide water for them. If people were in need of instruction and guidance, he would provide them that. Did I walk out of frame? I'm exploring the space. Um, it's my garden. Um, and there's one part where this guy, he's, 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 hasn't walked in years, and, and they lower him down through the ceiling, and he's in the room with all these people, and he heals the man, and he literally says, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. And when he says this, man, this thing, this thing is stupid. It's real dumb. I can feel it sliding off my face. And when he says this, all the religious leaders around him get really, really mad at him. And they say, how dare you talk about forgiving sins? Only the temple can do that. And Jesus is like, exactly. Like, yes, I'm here to do the work of the temple. And everything that the temple was supposed to do, Jesus does. And he even says at one point, he's like, he looks at the temple and he says, you tear this temple down and in three days I can build it up again. They're like, no, Jesus, this took 400 years to build. And he's like, no, we're okay. You can tear it down and I'll build it up in three days. And he's not talking about the temple. He's talking about himself because he's the temple. And he is now sort of this, this garden of Eden. He's providing this miraculous food. He's feeding these thousands of people on two different occasions. He would be the place where God has dominion over creation. The thing that Adam and Eve were commanded to do, have dominion over creation, Jesus exercises that regularly. He likes, he's talking 
to the wind and the waves and they're obeying. Everything that we see there, Jesus is the full embodiment of. Everything that we desire, everything that we have wanted, the way we've wanted to dwell in this world, Jesus becomes the physical explanation of that. And it doesn't even end there because after the death of Jesus and after the resurrection, Jesus gathers his people after the resurrection and he, and he, and he, and he gathers them around him. And he gives them their commission. He says, hey, in the same way that God sent me, I'm sending you. You are going to take my work. You're going to do my work. You're going to do my job. You are, you are going to do, be my presence in this world. And it says that he breathed on them. And it's a really weird thing because I wouldn't tell people like, I wouldn't tell my son, hey, I used to mow the lawn and now you're going to mow the lawn. <sighs> and be like, what does this mean? In the ancient world, this was a way of, uh, this was a way that priests in an ancient temple would put an image of themselves, of the idol, in their temple. It's called the spiration ceremony. They would breathe onto it and they would put it there and it had been carved up to look like them. And now it would represent this, this God, right? And you would look at it and you would say, oh, that's what the God looks like. And you would be able to gather different pieces of information about the God by looking at this thing and studying it and all that. And Jesus does this for his, for his apostles. And then the ascension happens and you're like, well, what do we do now? And a couple of weeks later, there's this second wind that blows through the, temp, through, through the upper room while they're there. And what happens is God, once again, forms a new Garden of Eden. And he calls it the church. And he says it's guided by his spirit. God is there with him, with all these men and women up in this upper room. And he says, now, basically, you are here to carry on the work that I taught you. There's a new throne room being created. And Paul writes this letter to this church in, 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 in the church in, in Colossae because they're looking around and they see, you know, they're gathering as a church, but every other religion in the, in the city has these massive temples. And in the center of all these temples is a garden, just like, just like they had back in Genesis. In the center of all these temples is a garden with the, the God there. And these things are beautiful and you can hear them singing and they go and they worship in these temples. And the Christians are getting a little self-conscious because they don't have a temple. They don't have a building. They have nothing. And... They're writing to Paul. They're like, what do we do? And Paul writes back. You know what Paul says? Your body is the temple. Now, when I was growing up, the, the phrase your body is the temple is just something my grandmother would say to keep me from getting tattoos. But that is not what that means. This is not individual. This is collective. Your body is the temple. When you gather together, you are, you are the temple. He says, you don't need a building. When you gather together, they can see you. They watch. And you do this in public, as we are now. And they can see you. And they understand the message of me because of the way that you live publicly in the world. And he says, so you are this new Garden of Eden. You are the place where God rules from, where God dwells amongst humanity again. And you are the place from where the love of God flows out. The garden we yearn for in Genesis 1 and 2, the one that that eight-year-old Tommy would go to the library to look for pictures of and say, I want to find that because I want to live there. That garden never left. We never lost it. It was always present with us. It was always accessible to us. And it's sort of like the prodigal son story. One of them's out looking for all the purpose and the hope and the other one is there. And one of them, the, the, the prodigal comes back and he enters into the house again and he receives it all back again. He realizes it was always here. But the other son doesn't actually go into the party. And he says, hey, everything you've ever wanted has always been accessible to you. You just never, you just never received it. It was always right there. That thing, that, that, that way of existence that we have always searched for, 
God intends for that to be on display in the church. God intends for a community like a city on a hill, a community of justice and forgiveness and mercy, of diversity and equality, of, of looking at each other and forgiving, of looking at each other as equals. That's why Paul works so hard to write to these churches and say, hey, rich, stop separating yourself from the poor. Hey, Jew, stop separating yourself from the Gentiles. You guys are one body, you're one people. There is no honor. You sit all at the same table together because you are the picture of, of how the world was supposed to be. You are the picture of that Garden of Eden. In the garden, we have everything that we need. We have an office and a vocation. We have a job to do. We were put here to tell the story of God, to look like God and to have dominion over the world, to take care of it and bring it to flourishing and, and, and a nourishing life. We have an identity. We realize exactly who we are. We have the divine presence of God with us. And the thing is about this garden is it doesn't end, just end with this garden. It's not just this garden moving through time with God's people. There's like this brother to the garden, which is the river. And the river... The river is this, is this also ever-present thing. Maybe if I go like this. How about you just watch me just all morning play with this thing? Um, and I draw attention to it every single time. And then I mention that I'm drawing attention to it. Um, so there's, with this garden the whole way through, there is this river. And you see this river popping up everywhere. And Paul emphasizes the river. Paul seems to think that this river is an important thing to point out. Um, the river, I mean, you can really see it in, in Genesis chapter 2. It says there was this river. It says a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. And this river nourished everything. And this river is the symbol throughout the text of the presence of God there with God's people because you need water to live. You need it. And so as you move through the text as well, in the Garden of Eden, there's this river. In the wilderness, there's this rock that Moses strikes and water comes out of it. And what's interesting is that Paul, in 1 in, in Corinthians 10, he talks about this, this rock that they got water out of. And Paul doesn't tell us how, but Paul says, and that rock that they got water out of, it traveled with them. It was always there. They were always drinking from it. I think he's telling a parable, unless somehow they got this rock. Who knows? Um, but I think what Paul is doing and Paul's very specific. Here's, here's the exact text. He says, they all, ate in, in, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And he's, like, he's basically saying Christ was always there. God was always there with you. The presence of God was always accessible to you the entire time, all through your trials, all through the difficulties. And of course, Jesus himself in John 7 stands up during this festival, and he says, I am the river. I am the water of life that you have been looking for. I am the presence of God in your midst. And when he's stabbed on the cross, when he's dying on the tree, and the, and the Romans run him through to make sure he's dead, blood and water flow out of his side. The apostles are very specific. They're, they're very intent on making sure you understand all of the symbolism all through the whole thing. That the presence of God is always there, even flowing out from the wound which killed the Savior. Because the presence of God flows out of the crucified Christ. And it all comes together at the very end of the Bible. So, the, the, again, the garden and the, 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 the water are there the entire time. At the very end of the text, you get to Revelation chapter 22, the end of the Bible. And they make one last appearance. And that appearance is incredible, and it's beautiful. It says, Then the angel showed me a river of, uh, of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God of, uh, and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the trees of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. We have this garden yielding its fruit every month. And the, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. And the throne and the Lamb of God will be in the city. And his servants will serve with him. That's Revelation 22, 1 through 3. 
This is what happens after the new city comes down, after the beast is destroyed. The beast is Rome, by the way. It's Babylon. It's, it's the empires of the world. And they have all failed and they have all fallen. And the people are mourning. And this new city comes down because it can't come from us. It has to come from God. And this new city comes down. And at the center of this thing is another garden and another river. And right away, the audience sees it and they realize like this is where we were supposed to be this is what we've been looking for and seeking this entire time and it says the river flows from the throne of god because again the garden is the throne room of god and the river flows from there and it goes out of the gates which are open and it says it flows out it starts naming people eventually it starts naming that like there's people outside the gates that want to come in and maybe they don't realize the gates are open and the river flows out and along the river it talks about these trees of life that are growing whose leaves are for the healing of the nations and so from this garden, this city, the whole world is fed, and the whole world is made whole, and the whole world receives the presence of God from this one place. And so all of this ends again with a garden and a river. We were created to dwell with God, to have our needs met by God, um, and in our time, in our time, in this place, that's something to look forward to, in this place, the place that God has given us that meets these needs that we had in the Garden of Eden is the church. And for so long, I feel like the church in general has been looking elsewhere to create that Garden of Eden. The church has been trying all these different ways to create a world of justice and goodness and some of them think you have to do this by power. Some of them think you have to do this by separation. Some think you have to do this by all these different ways. And we think that what God is going to do is something else. And that we're going to take part in that. But what the text has been telling us from the very beginning is that what God is going to do is the church. That's God's plan. If you've been wondering, if you've been standing around wondering, God, what are you doing? What's the plan here? He's looking at you and he's saying, I... I have given you everything that you need in the body of Christ. The church is the plan. The church is God's beachhead on the world, the place where God does his work from. You have everything you need to take care of each other. You can make sure, like Acts 2, you can make sure everyone in your midst is fed and clothed and healthy and taken care of. And the world can see it and the world looks into it and they see, well, this is how we were meant to be in the first place. And also, it's not just that you have the garden, you also have the river. You have the presence of God flowing out from you to everyone else. If the presence of God flows from you, it always has. The presence of God was flowing from you when you were checking out at the grocery store yesterday. The presence of God was flowing from you when you were looking for your mask for the thousandth time to go into the stupid store and you left it in the car. The, the presence of God was with you when you were self-isolating in your bedroom for six months. The presence of God was with you when you went through that um, emotional toll that we have been through. And the presence of God is with you now. And when we come together, my prayer and my hope is that we begin to see what God has actually given us. What the resurrection tells me is that, is that God is always making another, another way to be present. Another way. He's always making another way. Three days in the ground, 
being reclaimed by the earth, being turned into dust again. God can bring that back. And then God has invited us into that kind of resurrection work. We are a resurrection people. So we believe nobody's too far gone. We believe people can be made whole again. We believe everyone is redeemable. We don't lock people up and throw away the key. We don't kill them for the, for the crimes that they have committed. We work for their restoration. We believe that God can take anyone, even a, mur a terrible murderer like Paul, and turn them into the voice of God's people and the one who reconciles the Gentiles to the Jews in the church. And so because we serve a Jesus who is resurrected and who is present with us, God is constantly going to be poking and prodding you to make things right again with people, to bring things back from where they were, to make it whole again, to feed the hungry, to visit those in prison, to clothe the naked, to accept the outsider and the marginalized, to live sacrificially, and if need be, to pour out everything that you have so that others can live. Almost done. There's this passage in Deuteronomy 20 where Moses stands up at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, I'll give you the reference in case you want to look it up. It's, oh, it's 30, Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 15. And Moses stands up before all the people and he tells them, okay, we've been wandering for a while. He tells them their whole story. He says, I know we all want our place. I know we all want our, our promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. I know we want to finally build that place where we all want to exist together. And he says, but there's something I want you to know. And he says this, he says, turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. This command that I'm requiring to you today is not too overwhelming for you nor is it beyond reach. He says, if you want to find this, you have to turn to the Lord God with everything that you have. And he says, and it's not a hard thing to do. And he says, it's not, it's not in the heavens to make you say who will go up to the heavens for us and get it for us and enable us to hear it so that we may observe it. It's not some high and lofty thing that, that cannot be attained, that, that we don't have the right people yet and that we need to work and, and gain some power and move up the ladders. It's not, it's not out there. And then he says in verse 12, who will go up to the heavens for us? I'm sorry, uh, verse 13. He says, it's not across the sea to make you say who will go across the sea for us and get it and enable us to hear so that we may observe it. This thing you're looking for, it's not somewhere else. It's not, you don't have to go on this huge, long spiritual journey to find it. It's nowhere else. You, you can keep searching and searching and searching other places, but it's not out there. And what he finally tells them is this. He says, the thing is very near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your mind to observe it. He says, it's not across the sea. It's not out there. It has always been at your fingertips. The presence of God is found in his church. However we can gather, even if it's online in a, in a Zoom room with 10 people. The presence of God has been there the whole time, guiding and moving and feeding and nourishing and taking care of people. And he's worked wonders with us. So this is my, uh, my first time seeing a lot of you in over a year. And I have three things that I wanted to say. Um, the first one, obviously, that I wanted to say is thank you. It... Uh, for spending the last year sacrificing with us. Most of you have been selfless and, and, and you've, you've served and you've said, whatever we need to do, we will do. And you've made it easy in very hard times. And you could have made it a lot harder. I have a lot of pastor friends who had it a lot harder. And so I do want to say thank you um, for continuing to give as well. We haven't had to fire anybody. We haven't had to lay anybody off. 
We've actually been able to expand our ministries and do more. And I'm proud of you guys for that. Um, I think perhaps in all of this, we've learned a lot about our church and there's so much good that I've seen. And I never imagined that like we could go through something like this and survive. And the next year we sit in a hanging outside, having church in the sun or the shade for those of you who are early. <laughs> and the second thing I wanted to say after thank you is I want to say welcome. There's a lot of people who are new. I don't know how you found us, probably watching online or whatever. Welcome. I'm glad you're here, and I hope that we can learn to be that Garden of Eden for you guys. I want to make sure that you're fed spiritually, even physically. I want to make sure that you're taken care of. That's why we exist. We want you to understand that when you enter into the body of Christ, when you enter into the church, you are entering into the fellowship of, of your brothers and sisters, and everything that we have belongs to you. We want to help you. We want to serve you however we can. And the third thing I want to say is let's, let's do it again. Let's, let's build it again. Um, it might be a little slow off the gate, but this is the most hopeful I've been in a very, very long time. Um, after a long time of not gathering, you start to wonder who there is. If they're out there, if they're watching, all you see is little numbers on a ticker. And sometimes those numbers aren't very encouraging, and sometimes they are, but the numbers ultimately don't mean anything. What, what means something is seeing you guys. It's wonderful. I hope that this has taught us a lot about how, how we are to interact together and take care of each other. We are a people of the resurrection. We are a people who believe that anything broken can be made whole again and can be made right. And so resurrection tells us that God's future is not somewhere else. This is God's plan. And it doesn't seem like much, and it was never supposed to. God's churches at the beginning for hundreds and hundreds of years were these small ragtag bands of outcasts that God gathered together to build an army of people who were an army of peace, an army of merciful people who went out into the world creating equalness. Wherever things were uneven, they made them even. And it changed everything. And so resurrection tells us that God's future is not out there, it's in here. It means that God cares about the suffering in this world and that one of the remedies that he has given us is this church. And where God dwells, we co-rule with God in the garden where the river flows from. And so do me a favor, if you guys could stand with me, I'm gonna do the Lord's Prayer with you. Um, and after that, I have a benediction. If you know the Lord's Prayer, good for you. Say it nice and loud with us. If you don't, grab your phone, uh, open up watermarktampa.com. And um, I'm going to pray a benediction over us, and then I want us to say the Lord's Prayer together. So I'll give you a little time to grab it, and then we'll do the Lord's Prayer. And do it nice and loud with me. But here's my, here's my Easter benediction that I have to proclaim over you. May you, Watermark Church, be a garden of Eden, an island of love and mercy and justice in a world hurting and full of sorrow. May you bring light where there is darkness, life where there is death, and may God's presence flow from our community into the world for the healing of the nations. Happy Easter, Watermark. It's really, really good to see you. Let's do the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace, Watermark. Love you all.
Go play with some bunnies and hug a rainbow goat for me. <laughs>